After months of praying and planning, the hour had finally arrived. Under the cover of night, he slipped out of the city and began to survey the situation. He, he had heard the reports, but they hadn't prepared him for the magnitude of the destruction that lay before him, where rock ramparts had once towered. Miles of stone now lay scattered in piles of rubble. Under the moonlit sky, he paused to take it all in, exhaling. He let out a long sigh that hung heavy in the air. While never one to shy away from a challenge, the scene before him was downright discouraging. It had been 140 years since the invading army had come in and sacked the city and burned the city gates and demolished the, the city walls. And although it had been 140 years, not much had changed. Where towers and walls had once towered, there was now heaps of rubble and stone. Where there was once pride and a sense of awe and majesty, these stones were now signaling disgrace and shame. Although the temple in the city had been rebuilt, Seventy years ago, the walls of this great city still lay in ruin, and Nehemiah could understand why. E even for a, an experienced builder, a, a restoration project of this magnitude would be daunting. The task would have been overwhelming, and yet that's exactly what Nehemiah felt like God was calling him to do. How many of you know that God sometimes calls his people to take on tasks that can feel, feel very overwhelming. H how many know that God sometimes calls his people to take on challenges they might feel inadequate to tackle? How many of you know that, that, that God's MO isn't to come and disturb visions in the hearts of his people that are, that are easy and manageable? God has a track record, doesn't he, of showing up in people's lives and asking them to do things that, that can seem a little intimidating. How about when, when God showed up to a, a shepherd out in the middle of the desert and he said, hey, I want you to go and speak to the most powerful person in the world and I want you to lead my people out of slavery. Do you remember what Moses said when he had that encounter? He said, whoa, God, I think you might have found the wrong guy. He said, who, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? Or what about when God showed up to a farmer named Gideon and he said, hey, Gideon, I want to make you a general. And on your very first engagement, I want to send you into battle vastly outnumbered. In fact, I want you to take on the whole Midianite army with 300 men. Or, or how about when Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, uh, I'm returning to the Father and I've got a little task for you. I, I want you to go and to make disciples of all nations. And then he ascended into heaven. 
Do you think maybe the the disciples felt a little inadequate at that moment? God God has this track record of calling his people to take on tasks that can feel really overwhelming from a human standpoint. It happened back then and it happens today. In fact, when I read our, our church's vision for the year 2025, I'm left with the sense that this is something that's beyond our ability. That that even with the the right planning and the right strategy and and the right resources, just this idea that we could somehow pull this off in our own strength, it, it just seems all off. This isn't something we could do. This is something that's going to require a work of the Lord. And that's why we need to look to the book of Nehemiah to get a game plan for how to proceed when we realize that God is calling us to something that's beyond our ability. So if you've never read Nehemiah before, the major events happen in the year 445 BC. The once dominant Babylonians that were kind of the world empire, they came in, they sacked the city of Jerusalem, they carried off some of the people into exile. But then in the year 539, they were overtaken by the Persians. And the year after that, a Persian king by the name of Cyrus... He he permitted some of the exiles to return back home. But there wasn't a mass exodus of people at that point in time. Some of the Judeans chose to remain in the lands where they had been resettled. And some of these people, like for instance Mordecai from the book of Esther, even had important government positions. Another individual was a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's job, are you ready for this? He was a cupbearer. Now, I I know we have a lot of professions represented in our church here. We've got some folks involved in education, and we've got folks that are bankers and builders and healthcare professionals, but I'm guessing we don't have any cupbearers here, do we? Show of hands, any cupbearers? Okay, that's that's what I thought. So um, what in the world is this? Well, you know, it's kind of like, well, we, we don't have switchboard operators anymore, and we don't have, you know, town criers anymore. We don't have leech collectors anymore, and we don't have cupbearers anymore because there's no really longer a, a job market for these folks. But this was a pretty sweet gig back then. The reason that this was a, a nice job was it was kind of a combination between uh, being maybe a butler, a wine sommelier, and, and the canary that you would take down into a coal mine. Seriously, because Nehemiah's basic responsibility was to select the king's wine and, and, and then present it to him, and then he, you know, he, would, he would drink from it to demonstrate that it wasn't poisoned. And it was a pretty important role. Uh, it was a job that would have offered him some significance, some status, some comfort. He's a guy that, because the king wants a lot of wine, he would have had regular access to the throne. And so he's a guy that could have just played out his hand and he could have lived a very comfortable, stress-free life. But you know what happens? Sometimes God wants to call us out of our comfort zone. Sometimes God wants to take us out of our status quo. Sometimes God wants to move us out of the shadow, shallow end, out into the deep water for the purpose of growing our faith and allowing us to live lives of greater significance. And it would seem that Nehemiah was aware of this. And so as soon as Nehemiah hears that the walls of Jerusalem still lay in ruin, I want you to see what happens. 
This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here's what we see here. When God calls his people to embrace a vision that's beyond their ability, it will be advanced when it's fueled by prayer. When it's fueled by prayer. And if we were to keep reading, we would see that the rest of chapter 1 is an extended prayer. And guess what happens in chapter 2? Guess who prays again? Nehemiah prays. We're going to follow the action beginning now in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So here's what we know from, from chapter 1, that already, Nehemiah has already spent a great deal of time in prayer. And yet, here he is. He's in front of the king. The stakes are high. He senses an opportunity. And what does he do before he leans into it? Did you see it in chapter 4 or verse 4? He prays, doesn't he? He prays again. He's so dependent upon God that he doesn't do anything without praying first. And I wonder what would happen if all of us adopted this as our default mechanism. If sort of our habit in life was to pray first. If, you know, whenever we were walking into a meeting, or whenever we were sitting down with a client, or whenever we were heading in the front door at the end of the day, if we just stopped to ask God for his help. I think we as a people would be far more likely to reflect Jesus and to experience the powering of the Holy Spirit. Pray first. Listen, if our, if our church's vision for the year 2025 is going to come to fruition, it's going to be realized because we as a people become far more committed to prayer. Our vision was born out of prayer and it's been nurtured by prayer but just like with Nehemiah, it must be advanced by even more prayer. And so I want to challenge us as a church. I want to challenge all of you to, to pray in two ways. And, and, and the first way is this. I'd, I'd like us to adopt a spiritual practice that was modeled by our former minister of discipleship, John Williams. So what John would do is he set his watch alarm to go off at certain times during the day to remind him to pray for certain things. And if your schedule allows, I'd just like you to join with me in setting your watch alarm for 3.20 p.m. And then when it goes off, let's pray Ephesians 3.20 together. We can just say a prayer just like this. God, I pray that you would do far more abundantly beyond all that I can ask or think in my life and in your church. And that you would receive the glory. 
That, that prayer is in our beyond brochure. But how cool would that be if like at 320, all over, just God's people are praying this prayer. So this is, this is kind of how we see Nehemiah praying in chapter 2. This is just a short breath prayer. And the, and the second way I'd like you to challenge you to pray is, is more similar to how we see Nehemiah praying in chapter 1. And that's to set aside uh, some time for an extended period of prayer. Sometime between now and November 4th, will you commit to praying for one hour in our church's prayer room, just praying for our church and praying for your own spiritual growth? One hour on one day, one time only, just come and pray. And I know what some of you are thinking, like an hour? Like that's a really long time. I know that. I realize that. You know, I thought the same thing the first time Pastor David invited me to join him for the, the Monday hour of prayer that we have from 12 to 1. But he, he, let me, here's what I've realized. This, this is a good thing for us as a people. Prayer is something that brings intimacy with God, and it's also used by God to accomplish His results in the world. And, and especially if you're praying with other people, the time will come by fast. You can come and you can pray at our church anytime you want, anytime the doors are open. But if you'd like to come when you know others will, will be here, you can go to our church calendar and you can see that there are some specific times when some of our elders and our deacons and our prayer team members have, have already said they're going to come and pray and you can come and you can pray with them. And I promise this will be something that will enrich your walk. What we see in Nehemiah is that the vision of God is advanced as it's fueled by prayer. Turn with me now to chapter 3. Now on the surface, chapter 3 might seem like a bunch of irrelevant details. You may be wondering, why in the world is he reading this? But, but I want us to see something important. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but I want you to get a feel for it, and I want you to listen for a repeated phrase. Let's see if you can pick it out. So beginning now, Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachor, the son of Emery built. The sons of Hashaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baaniah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshaniah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatea, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzazel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Milkajah, the son of Haram, 
And Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shahulam, the son of Haholhesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Whew. All right. So uh, what can we learn from this other than I should have recruited a scripture reader? Look, now, here, here's what's really interesting about this chapter. What's interesting is that we see clergy and laity. We see men and women. We see ruling class and working class. We see groups from different towns, and we see groups from different trades. Like we've got, we've got goldsmiths, and we've got merchants, and we've got perfume makers. All these people are involved in the work. With the exception of the nobles of Tekoa, there are representatives from virtually every segment of the community. This is a work of the people. And what was the one phrase you heard repeated more than any others? Did you catch it? And next to them, and next to them, there's some of it's underlined, but it repeated again and again and again. What we see is that everyone working together accomplished the vision of God. This isn't something that the priests could do by themselves. Everybody's rolled up their sleeves. Everybody's put on the work hat. Everybody's put on their work gloves. The whole community is involved. And here's what we learn. God's vision is advanced when all the people of God engage in the work of God. When all the people of God engage in the work of God. Pastor Tim Keller notes that this event points forward to a shift we see fully realized in the New Testament. In prior times, you have these major figures like Moses or Joshua or Deborah who, who kind of lead the people. They more or less carry the people on their backs. But here we see movement away from one or two people doing all the work and that the ministry of rebuilding must be done by everyone, the whole people of God. And this work was ministry. It was holy work. We see it in Nehemiah 12, the, the, the whole wall is dedicated to God. There, there is a progression in the history of redemption as it relates to ministry. So whereas ministry in prior times was kind of one of these things that just the priests and the Levites did, they went into the temple and they served God. What we see is that, this, is that after Jesus, because of what he did, that a new day has been brought about. This, this event in Nehemiah points forward to the day when the veil in the temple would be torn in two and all of God's people would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and be priests to the Lord. So this is why 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's possession, that we may declare the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We're all priests. What we see in, in numerous places in the New Testament is that if you're a Christian, then you have spiritual gifts. But God doesn't give us all the same gifts. He gives different gifts, but there's no such thing as an unimportant gift. Every, everyone's gifted. And, and here's what this means. What this means is that if you're a Christian, you have a ministry. You have a role to play in the work of the Lord. In fact, why don't, why don't you just, everybody turn right now to your neighbor, and I want you to look him in the eye, and I, I want you to tell him this. Say, you have so much to offer. All right. Make sure you received it just as much as you, all right. There, there's some truth to this. This is God's design. 
that everyone has something to offer, that everyone's a minister, that the Great Commission isn't just a work of the pastors. Advancing God's kingdom is a work for the whole people of God. And in the same way that the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, not by the priests alone, but by when everyone worked together, in the same way, if we're going to realize our vision 2025, guess what it's going to require? Everybody working together. Everybody has a part to play in this. The contributions of every single person matter. You know how um, if you go to the store and you buy a bookshelf and it comes unassembled, that sometimes the manufacturer will throw in some, some spare bolts and screws? Well, I want you to know that, that, that that's not how it is with God. Like in, in God's kingdom, he just doesn't throw some, some spare parts into the church. It's not like, like any of us are like the third string quarterback that God's keeping around just in case Pastor David goes down, that he, he can raise us up. God wants everyone on the field. Everyone has a role to play. There are certain ways that you can minister. There's certain ways that you can teach. There's certain ways that, that you can reach people. There's certain ways that you can build up the people of God. And if you're ready to do the work of the Lord and you say, I just, I don't have any idea where to start. Please, after the service, stop by our resource center. We'd love to, to come alongside you and have a conversation with you about that. When all of our gifts are being used, that's when we can best fulfill the mission that God has for us. That's when we can best glorify Him and best accomplish our vision 2025. Turn with me now to, to chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 6. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Don't miss this. Whenever you undertake a great work for God, you're probably going to experience some opposition. I remember Pastor David told me a few years ago that when our church entered its very first campaign, uh, one of the godly men in our denomination, a man by the name of Howard Shockley, who recently passed, came to David and told him that you should anticipate a, a, a spiritual attack. And we kind of see that going on here in Nehemiah. He, he's doing the Lord's work. And guess what happens? He has opposition. In fact, if we were to show this on a map, he's, he's surrounded on all four sides. Not exactly the situation you want to be in when you don't have a perimeter in place. And here's what this means for us. As we begin this beyond initiative, we should be on guard as a people. This should motivate us to pray a little bit more. And we should pray for the unity of our church because we know that the evil one loves to come and he loves to stir up division. And he loves to, to bring discouragement too. You see, in much the same way that the enemy didn't want to see the glory of Jerusalem restored, we can be sure that the enemy doesn't want to see our vision 2025 realized. The enemy doesn't want to see more people coming to know the Lord. He doesn't want to see more engagement in local and world missions. He doesn't want to see more spiritual growth in our own lives. So let's see, let's see how Nehemiah handles this. It says in verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
So here, here we are. We're just going to pause. They've, they've had some initial progress. The wall's kind of half its height. And uh, a little bit of discouragement creeps in. And they're thinking, oh, you know, this is beyond our ability. But let's see what happens. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Fast forwarding now to chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of El Ol in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Hmm. Here's what we see. God's vision for His people is advanced as human response overlaps with God's sovereignty. Human response overlaps with God's sovereignty. Look with me again at verse 9 in chapter 4. The, the people, they pray to God and they post a guard. It's not either or, it's both and. And we didn't read it, but later in chapter 4, Nehemiah says, hey, I want everyone to work with a sword strapped to your side. And when you hear the trumpet, come running there and God's going to fight for us. I think sometimes we, we kind of create this false dichotomy in our minds where we say, well, you know, if God's really protecting us, that means we don't have to station a guard. Or conversely, well, if we station a guard, then that means we don't believe that God's protecting us. And it doesn't always have to be that way. Throughout Scripture, we see that, that, that human responsibility and God's sovereignty are two things that go together. The prophet Elisha tells Naaman, he says, God will heal you from your leprosy. Now go and bathe in the Jordan seven times. Or what about when the ten lepers asked Jesus for healing? Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priest. And the Bible tells us that as they went, they were healed. Or what about when Jesus says to his disciples, he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And then later he looks at his disciples and he says, uh, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. Like, I, I realize this can be a little difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Like, how can both of these coexist, right? Like, uh, if, if God's ultimately in control, then it, it shouldn't matter what I do, right? And the Bible says, no, God really is in charge, and it really matters what we do. Both are important. And in the same way that labor and sacrifice and hard work are required to rebuild the wall and accomplish the vision of God in Nehemiah's day, guess what's going to be required in our day? Hard work and sacrifice and labor and investment. It's going to require greater intentionality on our part, but it's going to be so worth it. 
And when we experience success, we know it's going to be because of the hand of God that's working on our behalf. Nehemiah passes out weapons to everyone. And then he says in verse 15, he says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. He might say, like, sure, yeah, we, ar- we armed ourselves, but, but who is the one that frustrated the plan? Help me out here, church. Who did it? God did it. Or, or what about in Nehemiah chapter 6, where they're talking about the wall? It says, when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished, let's read it together, with the help of our God. Like, sure, Nehemiah and his crew, they worked so hard, they didn't change their clothes for 52 days straight. I'm glad there were some perfumers in the group. (laughs) They worked really hard, but at the end of the day, how is it accomplished? Nehemiah says it happened with the help of our God. Here's what we know. Whenever we as a church do anything to advance the kingdom of God, it's not because of our own craftiness. It's not because of our own savvy. It's not because of of our own effort. It's because of the help of our God. And when our vision 2025 comes to fruition, that doesn't mean we get to run around saying, look at us. Look at how great we are. Look at how clever we are. Look at how wonderful we are. The realization of our vision will be because of the help of the Lord our God. It will be because of what God did. We have a responsibility, and God is ultimately in charge. And not only is that true of of any vision the Lord might give us, I think it's also true of our salvation. So Titus 3.5 says that God saved us not because of righteous works that we had done, but because of His mercy. In other words, God's the one that saves us. And yet whenever we read the New Testament, we see the gospel proclaimed, we see that some kind of human response is always required. So the, the apostle Peter is giving his very first sermon. At the end of it, you know what he says? He asks the people to do something. He says, repent and be baptized. Or the apostle Paul, when he has the encounter with the Philippian jailer, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What happens is, is God is the one who saves us. We experience salvation because of, of what God did for us, because of Jesus dying in our place. And yet we know that in order to receive this salvation, it's something that we have to do through faith. And if you've never received the gift that God offers, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We know that you don't need us. We know that you don't depend on us. And yet we're so grateful that you you would come and that you would allow us the great privilege of being of, of service to you and being involved in your work. And I pray specifically for those here who right now are, spiritually speaking, on the sidelines, wondering how they might be of, of further use to you and to your kingdom, how, how they might be used by you 
to advance your mission in the world. And I pray that you would come and that you would speak to them, that you would, that you would guide them, that you would instruct them, and that you would show us as a church how we can come alongside them. And I pray that all of us would be a beautiful picture of what happens when your people work together to do your work. And I pray also for those here who are not yet a part of your family. And if that's you, and today you would like to receive the gift of salvation, you can just say a prayer like this. God, I recognize that I need a Savior. I know that, that I can't save myself. And I thank you for sending Jesus to be my Savior. I believe that he died in my place. And I want to receive the forgiveness that you offer. Thank you for clothing me in your righteousness. And now I want to live for you all of my days. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.